Welcome to a Deshi the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 22. If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today's guest is Simba Mabasha. He's the co-founder of Wapona, a streaming video on demand platform based out of South Africa. Simba has come to the show to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, and his entrepreneurial journey so far. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And before we go on, let's take a quick word from our friends, and then we'll jump right into the interview with Simba Mabasha. Hey. We know you're a smart, savvy shopper, but you don't have all the time in the world to search all your favorite online stores for the best prices. Save yourself the time and energy by going to just one site, PriceCheck. PriceCheck helps you shop smart and save money by bringing all the choices to you. With PriceCheck, you get to compare the prices of products from all your favorite online stores with just one click. It's that easy. So what are you waiting for? Shop smart, save lots, use PriceCheck. Visit pricecheck.co.za or pricecheck.com.ng. See you there. Hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Simba Mabasha. He's the co-founder and CEO of Wabona, an online video-on-demand platform. Wabona delivers African TV shows, films, and documentaries to audiences across the African diaspora and Pan-Africa. Proud to co-founding Wabona, he also co-founded African Dust Media Group, a privately held company incorporated in South Africa with three primary major areas of interest in the TV, film production, and development of new media platforms. African Media Dust Group is the parent company of Wabona, and he's come to tell us about his entrepreneurial story and the story of VOD in Africa. So Simba, welcome to the show. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Awesome. Thank you for having me. Firstly, let me just uh, point of correction. I'm the former CEO. I stepped down six months oh, ago. Okay. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so I'm, the co- I'm just a co-founder and head of content. Okay. <laughs> no worries. So my, I'm a I'm Zimbabwean by birth um, and I am an entrepreneur by passion, but I'm a lawyer by profession. So I've been in an entrepreneur, uh, I started my first business when I was 15, um, I was a video club, so I've always been in media, but uh, I studied and I started pro- professionally my first business when I was, what, in 2004, and primarily my focus has been media and in particular African media, um, in terms of just trying to tell African stories, restructure, recalibrate. Um, how we tell these stories and how we get our point across. So, you know, my background is, yes, a legal background, but um, for the longest time I've always been fascinated by media, in particular um, television and film. Oh, okay, great. So what exactly, let's talk about your first first company or first first venture when you were 15 as a video club. What exactly were you doing as a kid back in those days? So my, the reality was that it was really hard to get... Um, get content, you know, um, outside, especially in the neighborhood, you know, people weren't necessarily getting the content. So I was like, listen, man, let's try to get some stuff. And I went to, um, to private school and we would get stuff earlier than like than normal folks. And we would just like bootleg that stuff and sell it. That was pretty much what, what I was doing at that <laughs> young age, you know, but I had a name, I had stickers, man. It was mad professional dog. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of my time when I was in secondary school. Me and my friend Chijoke, we used to be into like manga movies and anime. So yeah. we'd, we'd, we'd get the same like anime videos from video clubs in Nigeria and then we'll just copy them and rent them to our friends in high school. So I kind exactly. of I know where you're coming from. All that. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what I was doing, man. But I, and it was just like you, you'd be hustling, man. You'd hustle where you find it. And if you had family that travel, they'll bring like new VHS mm-hmm. and you'd be like, yo, let me get on that. And you know, we had two video VCRs, you know, so we could dub it, man. It, yeah. it was dope. It was, it was dope. But the things I learned there was taking risks. 
Oh yeah. You know, um, don't be afraid to take risks. See gaps and exploit it. You know, it's not that I came. We were pretty comfortable, but I always just loved business. I loved mm-hmm. hustling, and I was like, no, there's an interesting opportunity here where we can get paid. Yeah. You know, and in, and in the neighborhood, people didn't have these things. You know, so you get like moms coming to the spot, like I need um, this and that. Like, no, I got you. You know, so it was really, really cool. Nice. I really appreciated that. Nice. Then after that, man, I mean. I studied a lot, you know, I wanted to go to business school, but I couldn't get in, but I got into law school, which is crazy. You know, law school is harder, <laughs> you know, but I was always focused on entrepreneurship as as a passion. So studying, you know, Ted Turner, Rupert Murdoch, you know, guys who were building empires, you know, Dick Parsons was the first like African-American head at uh, Time Warner who blew my mind, you know, just like it made me, it made, it connected a lot of dots like, oh, okay, at least brothers can be doing this and mm-hmm. Dick Parsons was running one of the biggest media companies in the world and that just motivated me even more you know so from from 15 I had a very good understanding of what my life would be professionally and that would be media mm-hmm. but I needed to start building the steps and how to do that obviously my parents were hearing that they thought I should practice law yeah. at least have a backup <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah you know but um so I did that. I went to law school, which is pretty good. It's a good, it's a good thing to have. It definitely just uh, I learned a lot about critical analysis, corporate law, things of that nature, you know. But I always had a passion for business. So then I started African Dust um, twenty oh five. Um, but I did two other businesses in between to raise capital because venture capital funding in Africa is a joke. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I soon realized that we weren't going to get money from the state, being in South Africa or Zimbabwe. And angel investing is a very, um, it's a luxury of the rich. And we didn't have economies that made, if people were wealthy, if there were people who had high net worth individuals, they weren't necessarily going to be looking at media as an investment opportunity. You know, they would, uh, they would rather not do that, at least in, in the early 2000s. So I started a trade business, online trade business that looked basically at trading commodities, um, to raise capital. You know, one was mostly, first it was FMCGs, and then I went into base metals and into crude oil. Um, so I was just looking for ways to raise capital, you know, and to fund um, African dust. Okay, know. so hold on a second. Let's 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 take another step and talk a little bit about that. So you couldn't raise venture capital funding or any type of money whatsoever for Africa dust, but then you now decide to found um, this online trading company and the other venture. So what exactly were the gaps that you saw? Because some would have actually said, hey, this is kind of like a diversion to your main goal. But you, know, you, you built two companies to help you support your, your main focus and your main passion. Talk, exactly. about, talk about how exactly you did that. And what, so the and gaps are fascinating works. in that we, in Cape Town, um, we found some interesting opportunities in West Africa where, where people were looking for you know FMCGs and I had some good connections mm-hmm. with some of the big retailers and I had a connection and I uh, used Alibaba.com you know um, uh, what's the Mars company and we basically a sort of great online trading platform you can get buyers and sellers and I would source the products you know particular canned goods and try to get them to Benin in particular Nigeria would be the next step thereafter and the, the thinking there was you needed a business my thinking was you needed a business that could generate significant amounts of capital um be maybe two twenty five thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars that could be good seed capital for a business that takes a long time to break even which would be the media business which would be african dust media hmm. so the gaps were just looking at product made in south africa was making its way up to Namibia, Angola, DRC, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe at that time, the economy was um, was in, was was having problems, and once again there were opportunities there. So home was also a place where I went back to mm. um, to try sell like oil, like petroleum products, because there was a lot of trade happening. Because purely because the economy was contracting and there weren't enough resources, that if you were clever enough yeah. and you could source product at a good price point. People had the cash to buy it because banks weren't necessarily giving people good money, but these products were still in high demand. And because Zimbabwe's got a big diaspora, the diaspora is actually, in my view, sub- supporting the economy significantly. We lost about, from maybe 1998 to 2008, I think the figures maybe 5 million people left the country. 
you know, and those people were not supporting the economy in part through remittances. So once again, another opportunity. So basically the gap was to find something that you can move quickly to generate capital, you know, basically a trade business and trade businesses can do that. Yes, they have their rules and I became well acquainted with international trade and being a lawyer, I could understand the laws behind it, you know, and I just learned that stuff very quickly on the go. Like if I can move that product there, that product here, you know, and generate capital, you know, I can, I can get, I can do some very fascinating things, at least not be dependent um, on, on, on capital. This is also just learning from having been to pitch meetings, having pitched to every single fund you could find at the time for money. And they would just say no, you mm-hmm. know, so one had to say to himself, okay, I'm really passionate about this, you know. Do I need to go work to raise the capital? I didn't feel that way inclined. I said, no, let me rather hustle. You know, and try to generate the capital to build this dream, um, and trade made the most sense at the time. Oh, that's great! So basically, yeah. you, you didn't really care about what product you were moving, as long as you knew a company, a country rather, um, did not have this product, so you could get it from SA and get exactly. it up there, and then sell it, get your profit out. And obviously, since the diaspora was supporting a lot of these purchases for their friends and family back home, you were also getting foreign exchange, right? So you were having minimal currency risk of, oh, should Zimbabwe dollar depreciate any further, you won't be able to get your money out. That's very... very So you'll be hedging, you'll be hedging, dollar hedging, (laughs) (laughs) using the dollar as a hedge, you know, and and that's that's what fascinated me about it. And the the country woke up to that because a lot of guys that, that realized that was a great opportunity, you know, particularly for the miners, for the FMCG retailers themselves, you know, for the farmers, a lot of businesses mushroomed around the economy collapsing. Mm. And that's just entrepreneurship finding or capitalism finding a way. And I, I was impressed by that. I was very much inspired by that. As complicated as Zimbabwe is, I think some of the best hustlers in the world come from that country, you know, um, and I learned a lot. And it, it, it really informs my, one of my thinkings or philosophies as an entrepreneur you really need to know how to fund yourself. Mm. You know, I think the Valley or first of all, the developed economies have infrastructure to fund entrepreneurs. Africa doesn't for the most part. And you really need to, you need to recalibrate or change your paradigm about fundraising and say to yourself, if it, if it means me, you know, being a salesperson for a wee bit, you know, to solve this product for me to raise the seed capital that I can raise, then do it. You know, I think sometimes we think this is a sexy space and we want it to we want to be like Zuckerberg or Larry Page and, you know, and Sergey Brin and, and, and Steve Jobs and them, but they had an infrastructure that was fifty years old before they got there. That's true. Where, you know <laughs> you know, you have Sequoia, you know, funding you or the many V C firms in Adris and Horowitz, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in Africa. Yeah. You know, and I learned that the hard way. I learned that quickly. Like, nah, no one's going to give you cash. Yeah. You know, so you got to find your own cash. Exactly. Especially, and that in addition to the fact that trust is a bit of an issue. Well, not a bit of Definitely. an issue. It's a major issue. So nobody knows if you're just going to take the dollars and disappear into the night. Exactly. There's exactly. no credit checking system or anything like that. Or... Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Not totally here. Not Nice. Okay, so you start your two trading ventures, you know, you raise enough money, and then what happens? You just decide, okay, you're going to pour in all the profits you made from the trading yeah, ventures. So, so right those ventures they didn't go through they didn't go too dope, right? But they they got me connected with some bankers, you know, and uh, my first pitch meeting was actually bizarre in that it was at a dinner party. Um, talking about what I'm doing and this banker was like yo listen I like what y'all are doing and, and boom he just gave it. in 15 minutes we raised quite a bit of money yeah. you know uh, <laughs> you know and then after that we put all that money into African dust uh, basically and our focus at the point was at that time was trying to build production so let me take a step back and, and explain to you where we were at at the time okay so, sure sure break it down in terms of African media, right, you have uh, NASPERS, right, which is the biggest media company. Yes, Kuzbeka. That's run out of <laughs> Kuzbeka, exactly, run out of Cape Town, and they own MultiChoice, uh, which owns DSTV. DSTV, yeah. And they were the biggest cats in the game at the time, right, or still are the biggest cats in the game. Then you had the TV broadcasters. Then you had some private industries, like Nigeria had a, some private broadcasters, as did Kenya and Uganda. But in the south, 
you know, most of the SADC region countries didn't have private broadcasters. There were one or two uh, ETV in South Africa. There was one in Zim that folded, you know, uh, but everything was state-run or DSTV supplemented that. Mm. So there was um, what I realized at the time, like, as much as, and I had grown up, you know, within that DSTV or satellite space, right, they weren't necessarily making content that reflected Africans, you know, and reflected African experiences and reflected more so African middle-class experiences where I come from. You know, at, the, at that time, Nollywood was blowing up, right? And you could and see... And this was that, when? 2004 or five? 2008, yeah, 2006, 2006, okay. 7, 8, yeah. Okay. You know, Nollywood is now blowing up and you're seeing that, man, these dudes are really doing some interesting things and because, once again, they realize that we don't necessarily need a studio system or a broadcast system. We're going to get some cameras, some sound equipment, some editing software, and we're going to tell stories. You know, say what you will about the quality. You know, at least these dudes took it. They, they saw the gap, and they built, what, the second or third, the third, the second biggest by volume film industry in the world, yeah. you know, worth a quarter of a billion dollars, you know, because they saw a gap, and they didn't necessarily depend on other funding sources. They made a plan to fund themselves. Mm. So... But at the time, we looked at the system like, no, we need to get stories to, you know, your, your DSTV channels like Mnet, you know, or your SAVCs or ETVs, you know, for them to fund your projects. Because what would happen, you'd be paid on a commission. They would commission you to go make the content, but they would keep the back end. They would keep fundamentally their own, the copyright, you know, or the rights to the exploitation of that content. Mm. So first pitch meetings, you're like, firstly, I was like, nah. That makes no sense because we're the, we're the creators. Well, the creators should basically be, be allowed to own the asset in perpetuity. Yes. You know? So let's rather look at funding models where we pay 50-50, you know what I'm saying, or we pay for it ourselves, or we own some of the digital rights. You know, let's just look at it very differently because although this only became clear 2010 going forward worldwide, I could definitely see that rights would be split between pay TV, free-to-air, um, video-on-demand, mobile, digital. It was already happening, right? You know, people were starting to... to the Americans had split rights already between pay TV, cable, and free-to-air. So that was happening, and then there was syndication. Mm-hmm. So there was already a, 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 a platform where rights owners could own their content in perpetuity. So Jerry Seinfeld still makes more than $50 million per annum because of Seinfeld, something oh, yes. he made 20 years ago, yes. you know, because he owns part of the back end, <laughs> you know, so he can never be poor, as is the same thing for the cost of friends. They can never be poor. Yeah, so friends, I want, Fraser, Seinfeld, exactly. those guys are making a killing on the back end. Exactly, you know. Why could that happen to African producers or African content makers? So the first hurdle we realized what there was a, fundamental um, um, misunderstanding of what creatives mean to the industry. But unfortunately, the creatives themselves didn't do themselves any good because they were just happy to get content made. And if they got a commission, you know, it was more hand-to-mouth, they were cool with that, right? So, but then what happened in South Africa is that the SABC, that's the South African Broadcast Corporation, which got into financial troubles and became bankrupt. So a lot of people lost their jobs because they were depending on the SABC. And Mnet and ETV weren't necessarily paying that well anyway, right? So I realized that, okay, we need a bit more suits in the game, a bit more business people in the game, you know, where we can start negotiating on different footing. And this is my, my initial thinking was let's try to make content you know, where we can either fund the funding ourselves or co-produce it with the broadcasters. Or if the broadcasters commission it, we own at least 30% mm-hmm. of, 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 the, of the asset going forward, right? Obviously, that didn't make sense to the broadcasters. You know, you're getting into fights with people, you know, like over how you exploit an asset. And soon we realize that... An asset that, that you create. That you create, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And we're like, you know what, man, this is not going to work. So we had to go downstream. Right. So upstream would be the creation of content, you know, your production, your studios and stuff. You know, the middle would be middle and downstream would be the broadcasters and, and downstream would be via on demand the digital platforms. Mm. Right. So we went downstream and we went to the digital platforms whereby we then created Wabona, which was an online video streaming service akin to Netflix but for African content. Mm-hmm. We started the business maybe Two, three years after Netflix was looking at streaming, and we started learning a lot from Netflix, but 
coinciding with that. Wait, so, so let's give it a context. So you started Wabona, let's call it what, 2009? 2008. 2008. Oh, wow. So yeah. you were a couple years even earlier than Iroko TV. So Iroko and I, yes, we were about the same time. Iroko, Buni, and ourselves were about the same time. Okay. When they, yeah, we were about 14 months difference apart. Okay. Yeah, apart, exactly. It's, but, and, and it's great that you mentioned Iroko because that was my next point. So those dudes had really started building an online presence via YouTube, mm-hmm. you know, with Yoruba Love and Niger Love and those type of content. So yes. once again, that, that Nigerian narrative kept on recurring in that they had built an industry firstly. Yes. Jason comes along and then he built a distribution platform via YouTube. So you could now see that, no, okay, the upstream is, you know, um, in Lava Market, that's the upstream, right? Mm-hmm. The downstream is Iroko or YouTube, you know. And we then said to ourselves, Iroko are probably taking a page out of Netflix as were we, you know. And we we're like, you know what, let's look at the downstream in terms of building a platform whereby you can put all these content, in particular for the African diaspora, because they have better internet, that more money, that more credit cards, yeah. you know, because payments, which I'll speak to later, are fundamentally a big part of the issue, you know, and they were more, they were becoming accustomed to watching content on demand on mobile devices, on smart televisions, on playstations, you know, and things of that nature. So oh, it was beginning just, to, just to interject here, I see another dollar hedging that you're doing because basically the diaspora is going to pay you in dollars and you don't have any exactly. risk whatsoever. Exactly. And yeah. obviously my costs are in rand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice yeah. geographical arbitrage. Okay, go on. Exactly. Exactly. So we were, we, we, we realized that. And we built Wabona. And we, we unlike you, Roka didn't go the YouTube route, right, or Puni, to be said we're going to build our own platform. So we invested a significant part of our startup capital into building our own platform, mm-hmm. you know. And then we got, uh, we managed to, and, and a recurring theme, I think, in, in my entrepreneurial journey is fundraising. I think you'll hear that. Okay. Is that because we built our own platform, we're still not making cash, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You yeah. need to get some more cash. And this at this time, this is now like um, 2011, 2012, right? Like companies are starting to wake after the, 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 the after the, the, the bank, the, the, the recession of 2008, a lot of money left the Western markets, right? But was looking for homes, right? And Africa became the, the best opportunity for high returns because you're not going to get that in the bank, you're not going to get that in the stock market, but you're going to get that in Africa, right? So you found a lot of private equity coming to Africa. Then you start finding a lot of venture capital coming to Africa. So we were part of 88 miles per hour, the first batch of company, and they had launched uh, an incubator accelerator in Nairobi, and then they came to Cape Town. So we got into that and they took that. A part of the business, and they gave us some funding um, for us to carry on going, right? But I will speak to that a bit later as to okay. how that that model is a problem, you know, for African businesses. But I'll speak to that later. But anyway, when once we got that funding, we then redesigned the site, you know, and then rechanged. Initially, we were a pay per view model. We became a subs- uh, a strictly subscription model, all you can eat model, just like Netflix, you know. And then Iroko were launching their own service, their own platform service, Iroko TV, and then Buni were launching their own service at the time. So we had fully changed our thinking from being an upstream business to being a downstream business, build our own platform, and focus on selling this content, predominantly Southern African content, to the diaspora. And it's weird, the, the, the industry uh, in its um, early stages actually formed quite interesting. Iroko dominated West Africa, Buni East Africa, and us Southern Africa. Um, that was super interesting. It made it kind of easy, actually, <laughs> you know, because then, <laughs> You just stay in your stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Regional monopolies. Exactly, exactly. Although Iroko is changing that now because they're now they're coming to yeah Southern Africa and Eastern Africa. Very aggressive guys. Very aggressive. So that's that's how it worked out, man. Is that the business we had to iterate um, quite quickly, and that's fundamental to entrepreneurship. Mm. Is that you need to, to you need to fail fast, you know, so that you learn and you find gaps and you keep it moving. And we had to do that. So what were some of the early iterations? So let's talk about, um, I think it's, was it African Dust where you were creating your own TV shows and movies and exactly. what? Exactly. So that was African Dust, exactly. Okay, so you, st- you started making your own movies, TV shows, creating them, and then you now pivoted full-time into Wabona, if I get you correctly, right? Exactly, yeah, because we couldn't sell that content. Okay. You know? Yeah. 
and no one will pay for it. Okay. <laughs> so now you're you're doing your streaming services across um for Southern African content to the diaspora. How are you getting um production houses and companies to work with you and put their content on your platform? So we had to do one of two things, man. We had to pay for it, pay mm-hmm. a license, which we did, mm-hmm. uh, for a big part of our library, or we go 50-50 revenue splits. So for the smaller industry players, that was feasible. But it was a very fragmented, and it still is a very fragmented space, yes. you know, fragmented space, purely because we don't have a structure whereby we have uh, – four broadcasters like the States or 1011 broadcasters and cable companies and then studios that handle that. You know, it's not a, it's not a well-developed um, industry because it's still very new. So we had to go to the individual rights owners and negotiate with them directly. You know, there weren't aggregators, which is happening now, mm. you know, um, as is like, but yeah, so there weren't any of those businesses. So you'd go directly to the SABC, which we did. We probably, we were the first company to do a deal with the SABC to stream their content worldwide um and and so that's what we did we had to pay for it or do a revenue split but that that obviously puts pressure on your on your on your on your cash flow because you're paying upfront costs but you're not getting paid for it because yeah. we were very early movers you know and that's that's a big part of, of video on demand actually is that the big struggle is it will take time to make to break even and to make cash you know but you're paying you're putting money down for the mm-hmm. content though and for the most part, so you really have in that deep pockets that can sustain you for 24 to 36 months, you know, while you wait for these things to make money or you go a revenue split. I'm more inclined to go a revenue split because we both share the risk, the content owners and ourselves as the platform. Yeah. So yeah. that also means that you have to have, like, some serious amount of cash in the bank when you're buying these um, licenses and getting these yeah, like really, libraries. it does. So at the, ta- at how the time, that- we had some okay. cash. We, we, had, we had raised some money, you know, um, and, it, and it made sense. But I think now the industry is, has gone up. I think pricing has gone up fivefold since we did our first round of deals, you know. Um, so it's even harder now. But the irony is there are about 102 VOD services in Africa now. Hmm. You know, so it's weird that you know, at the barest entries for us, Iroko, Buni, you know, were quite high at the time, but seemingly they become low, you know, because multi-stress has entered the game, the big newspaper companies are entering the game, mm-hmm. you know, foreign players are entering the game, so it's making it, and they have, they have USD-based capital that can circumvent any sort of, you know, African issues, you know what I'm saying, in terms of, of, of paying for content, but what you're finding, those people are bringing a lot of Hollywood content, you know, uh, which I think is a mistake, but I can speak to that later, you know, and also we're having a platform bubble, you know, therefore with 102 players, right, how does the industry grow in that there's going to be price pressure, you know, because everyone's going to try to cut prices, price, price, price yeah. you know what I'm saying, we still haven't sorted out payments, so mobile payments, which is the only thing that makes sense, you know, for the most part on the continent, you know, makes the mobile money, I think, is the key to any sort of payment gateways. Advertising money is still small because advertising is still going to broadcast and print and radio. So it's not really coming digital. It's not the changes are not as aggressive as in Europe or America, you know, even South America. So the industry is now potentially could be stillborn because you have a lot of people coming in and the people are fighting at the same price point. So five ninety nine to eleven ninety nine US dollars is probably the price, the sweet spot for pricing and everyone is pricing at that level. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 basically, and you're telling the consumer choose between all these new things, and he still needs to worry about paying for his data because ADSL penetration in Africa is still quite low. Exactly. Mobile penetration is is growing, but LTE penetration is still quite low, although it's growing. You know, so he still needs to worry about that his data bundle. You know what I'm saying? He's trying to watch that content, right? You know, and that's 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 a big issue. So we're finding, at least what I'm finding is that we potentially are putting the industry at risk by having this platform bubble first and foremost and pricing wars when people are not really sure what if they want to pay for this content. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's an interesting space. It's an interesting time we're in right now. You know, but we, we learned that we've seen this um, because we were one of the pioneers in this space. You know, we've seen that this is actually an interesting and um, potentially detrimental problem in yeah. our space. You know, because you need you need money to buy the content, right? You need money, and, and and I'll say this, man. I'll say that, and let me maybe speak to it now. 
going Hollywood makes no sense to me, man. Because okay. why? Because listen, man, DSTV has owned that space for twenty odd years now. Yes, you know what I'm saying. And they will tell you themselves, right? Research will tell you that the biggest channels are African Magic. You know what I'm saying? Yes. African Magic Plus, Muzanzi Magic. These are com- these are channels, you know, directly um, supporting black content in one way or another. You know what I'm saying? You know, firstly, secondly, they already have the monopoly on the Hollywood content. Across, so if you're across a, Africa, across Africa, right? Mm. If you're a new player, right, and you come into the space and you say, "Listen, I'm going to give you exactly the same ish, the same stuff I can get, right? You know, on DSTV, but I'm going to give you on VOD. Yes, it's going to be it's going to be cheaper because the, the subscription is lower, but you still have to pay for your internet, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, so so it's still weirdly balanced and safe out. Like those those in, those those initial costs of a satellite dish and a decoder and a subscription, you know, will still will go into you paying for the internet for you to watch that. But you, the African consumer, has told you by behavior, by fact that Nollywood is probably the second biggest film industry in the world for a reason. Blacks want to watch blacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's just a cultural thing of an erase thing. They just want to see situations they grew up in. Yeah, they exactly. Something you can relate to. You can't really exactly. relate to somebody talking about a coffee shop in New York and all that exactly. stuff. It's interesting yeah, to watch those movies, but you yeah. want to see a guy just like you doing things that you could have... Like we were just speaking to earlier about you you dumping tapes and giving to your friends and me doing the same thing in Lagos. Yeah. You want to see people like that that are doing the same thing even though exactly. it's South Africa or Mozambique or whatever. Exactly. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it makes no sense, right, for us to then push this particular thinking. So I think we're dumping. I feel the studios are dumping content here. I'll say this controversial position, but I think we really need to actually start supporting you know, and investing in African content because producers and creators really do require us, really require the, the, the funding power to make quality content, to make different types of stories. And you're seeing what's happening with Kansimi Ann in Uganda, you know, with some boys like P.O. Box in, in Zimbabwe. You know, guys are going to YouTube and creating really interesting content, you know, that's, that's relevant, that's funny, that's real, you know, and putting it out there. There is enough talent in the content. Why then should we, why why not build industries and platforms that put money in their pockets so they can tell more stories? Mm. You know what I mean? Instead of like going back to the same played out formula, let's just bring more Hollywood content. I mean, MTN, VD, everyone has got Hollywood content. Although some guys are changing, some guys are going to have an African strategy, which is going to be fantastic. But I think we really need to look at this thing differently and say, let's rather give Africans what they want. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so basically just build a more institutionalized video service for Africa. And I'm not just saying exactly. video service as like distribution, but like video production, storytelling and story making and exactly. just, just basically making the thing at least a little bit more formalized so that you can have a structure for people to get paid, for the creatives to get paid, for people that are looking for jobs to have an avenue to, you know, go exactly. into something where exactly. they can do something profitable and yeah. just help the whole system develop, kind of like the way Hollywood developed in the early, what, 1900s or something like that? Yeah, yeah, for the 20th century, man. That's how exactly. Mm. You just need to formalize. We need yeah. to build infrastructure. We need to build creative infrastructure so that people, as you rightly say, you know, they need to be guilds. Actors need to be able to get a standardized contract, they need to be able to get protection, medical aid, insurance, all those things. Directors need the same type of infrastructure, writers need the same infrastructure, whereby they can learn to write better, where they, they can be represented. Copyright protection needs to improve significantly, oh, right? Yes. You know what I'm saying? Standardized, standard, standardized filming, like we have to all be filming in HD, soon we have to all be filming in, H, in, in, in 4K, we have to have sound standards, because there's a huge disparity in quality, you know, and that's, that's a problem. That's a big problem. And I can see the consumer saying that, yo man, as as dope as Nollywood is, right, there was a huge problem with the quality controls, you know, yes. because there were none. You know what I mean? And that became that that's changing. I mean some guys are changing that, you know, and that's fantastic. But we need for there to be an industry that pushes that. You know, industry that says no we won't accept this being a standard of African content. We need this. We need a certain standard where we can all agree to, like, when we're putting out content, we want to compete. Let's compete with the same type of shoes. 
Like the Olympics. Exactly, right? One guy should be running barefoot, other guy should be running with like Puma spikes. You Mm. know what I mean? And that's that's the case right now. Mm. You know, it's like some guy can do it in a home studio with the handicam, and some guy's using a red, you know, like red camera. You know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know what I'm saying? You know, we need need better. The the consumer deserves better, Mm -hmm. you know? That's interesting. Okay, so you've spoken about the Hollywood strategy being a mistake in Africa. Let's talk about the payments issue and what needs to happen in that space because obviously Africa is becoming the number one mobile mobile continent in the world. I hear there's a lot more mobile phones in Nigeria as there are in the United States and obviously... Um, obviously, data is still a big challenge, but I think those barriers will still be coming down as more fiber optic lines reach the continent and uh, open up the continent to yeah. um, broadband, as it were. So let's talk about mobile payments and how um, that also affects your industry. Definitely, man. So let's let's begin. So there's enough. The the reality is right. We're a very underbanked unbanked continent. That's the first thing. So credit card penetration, uh, debit card penetration is very low. And this problem was thus solved in Kenya by M-Pesa because mm-hmm. M-Pesa realized that, no, people are um, – and this, I think, is an interesting thing. And why M-Pesa, I think, is probably and – I, and, and, I, and I don't want to exaggerate in any way, but probably one of the most important technological advances in African history purely because they managed to connect urban and rural you know, I managed to send money via a mobile device. Think about your grandmother who's 70 plus years old, is comfortable receiving money via an SMS. Hmm. <laughs> Let's just think about the mind, the, the shift of thinking, you know, via USSD code, like this is your money coming from your son or grandchild in a city, right? Mm-hmm. So these dudes managed to solve the problem of payments, at least in that particular country and region. That's making it more straightforward for people to start banking and start getting involved in mobile payments. That builds this massive business whereby a big part of the Kenyan GDP or Kenyan economy runs through mobile money. You know, it catches on throughout the continent and people start getting into the game. We, any sort of vendor, retailer, business has to now start thinking and considering how best do I make it easier for my customer to pay me via mobile device. We have, last check, I think we'll have 800 million mobile devices, you know, by now and maybe end of the year we'll have a billion in sub-Saharan Africa, I think, a billion mobile devices. We still, when I did a presentation of this a few years ago, we were only at about, um, we're still at 40% no mobile penetration in Africa. So there's still 40% gains to be made mm. in terms of giving people mobile phones. And these are feature phones, not only smartphones. So smartphone penetration is maybe at 25 30%, and that's growing astronomically, right? Mm. So the mobile device is becoming not only your bank, it's your entertainment, it's your radio, it's your, it's your messaging system, and it's your phone. You know, it's become the epicenter of the African home of the individual's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And we need to then find ways for that dude, that him or her, to pay us via that, that particular device. And in any, any retailer should seriously be considering, if not you're failing, I would say, how best to make this work. Mm-hmm. And in our industry, we need to find a way, firstly, to find the right content size. You know, how long should the content be? So are we looking, because of the data problem, we can't give someone 30 minutes to an hour. We have to give them shorter content, you know, for them to consume. You know, secondly, you know, what type of content does that look? So the formats and the genres have to change. You know, it should be comedy. You can't necessarily tell a dramatic story in five minutes or seven minutes, you know, so you need to rethink the kind of content you're making. So you're going to producers and creatives like, listen, guys, if we're going to go the mobile route, we've got to look at this differently. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? You know, thirdly, what's the price? (laughs) You know, what is someone comfortable with? If people, you know, are still living maybe on, a hundred bucks, you know, per month, U.S. dollars in Africa, right? You know, as a, as a, as an average, whatever the average is, how much is he willing to spend in entertainment? You know, bearing into mind, he still needs to message, he still needs to, um, you know, use radio, 
and and take and make phone calls and receive phone calls. Yes. So for entertainment, how much how much can you charge him? You know, for him to watch a clip of content on his mobile device. So you need to now have a you know you need to have a progressive pricing policy. Okay. You know, in terms of that. So in terms of mobile money, it's 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 it, it has brought us interesting challenges. You know, because you have to re you have to reformat the way you think about the content you make and how you get it to the customer and how you get paid. But it's a better it's a potentially a better bet than depending on advertisers because advertisers want big CPMs. You know, want big volumes. You know, and unfortunately, they also, with all due respect, just don't get. The kind of behavior that's happening on mobile or on digital in Africa, they're still very much hell bent on focusing on broadcast, print, and radio. And they're not going to give digital dollars, you know, to the mobile phones. And and you still have to bear in mind, eh, you still have to take care of the mobile operator themselves. Exactly. You know, so so we've done deals now where where people where, you, where, where you're getting twenty percent of the revenues, the operator is taking is taking eighty wow. percent. You know what I'm saying? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, man. It's bananas, you know. Eighty <laughs> percent. Yeah, and that's been the case, you know. I think audio had the same problem for a minute, you know, uh, for a long time, and and I used to, I, I'm a bit offended that no disrespect to radio, mm. but we're a high data business, you know, <laughs> you know, and 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 we bring we bring a lot more to the table, you know, because we're audio we're, we're audio visual, mm-hmm. we're telling stories, you know. You got to give us more, and I've told the guys this. I've told mobile. It's not sustainable. People won't stay won't stay for long with those types of price points, you know. So those are, that's the environment we work in in terms of mobile payments. Nevertheless, anyone who can solve this, anyone who can provide an Impesa-esque system, where it's excuse me, more like just like a a mobile debit or credit card, right? Where the money, you, the, the the mobile operator is just taking a commission on the transaction. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Not necessarily a revenue. You're not taking a revenue, but a commission on transaction. That makes it easier for 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 VOD services for creators to then charge a, a, a price point that makes a lot more sense and becomes volumes based. So is it a dollar fifty? You know, per week or per day or per month, whereby you can, you know, either you get pay per view or you get, uh, you know, a subscription window where you can watch as much content. Or, you know, in terms of the technology side, compression that's been sorted out, cutting that's been sorted out. We have a system that does that, you know, and other people are entering the game doing the same thing. So that's not necessarily a problem. It's not finding the price point, you know, that this, that I dare say does not um, depend. On the mobile operators taking a huge chunk of your revenues, you know, and any mobile payment system that can do that, I think wins. And I'm thinking Pesa is winning, you know, in East Africa, you know, because of that, particularly in Kenya, because of that. People, you know, from some of our friends in the region, they tell us people are more comfortable paying for video on mobile than they are online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there is already that, that, that mindset has shifted that, no, we are comfortable with watching content on our tablets and mobile devices and we're comfortable with paying. They get more transactions on mobile than they get online. Okay. You know, that just shows where we're at. But it's still a massive, massive problem that, that needs to be solved at an industry level, at an institutional level, you know, and at a retail level. Wow. And I was under the impression that at least South Africa had some of these challenges already sorted out because technologically speaking, South Africa is slightly more ahead than West Africa and East Africa. But it seems like the... That's a myth, dog. That's good PR. We've got good PR here, man. I'll tell you, the best place technologically in Africa is East Africa, by far. Wow, yeah. East Africa is, is, is at least five years ahead. Yeah, and I, and I actually came to discover that um, M-Pesa wasn't the first in the mobile space. They've just got good PR also. There's another yeah. company called 3G Direct Pay that was actually doing mobile payments way before M-Pesa got in there. So that's, there you go. That's, there you go. That's I mean, very we are, interesting. Yeah. Now, we're very different. I think, I think uh, in terms of um, Africa Silicon Valley, if you want to call it that, that's mm-hmm. East Africa. By by far, man, I respect what those dudes are doing over there. They they just they are really at the cutting edge of how we're integrating new technologies into our lifestyles. Yeah. They're more progressive on pricing. You know, data is not we're very data is very expensive in South Africa. Very expensive. Yes, uh, very it's, expensive. it's the same way in what in Nigeria too, in West Africa. Data. Is yes, very it is. Wow, yeah. I did, I did, I did. I this is kind of like news to me that data is still that expensive in South Africa. 
completely expensive. But we, we're an economy of oligarchs, though. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's not super competitive. Mm. There are only two or three players in each aspect of the economy. Yeah. That's how Mauritius has been very successful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas I think East Africa, West Africa, to a point, it's more competitive now. Mm-hmm. And the competition is super important. It just makes the it, it's 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 so important for the consumer. You know, to be in a in, in a competitive capitalist environment purely because. It makes the products and the services and the prices better for them. And I would rather an entrepreneur work in that environment where if I know that my competitors are manning up, I need to man up. Okay, so speak a little bit more about this competition. You already said you have about 102 VOD services. And obviously, like, the three of the leading VOD services are Iroko, Buni TV, and you guys. So... So what is the competition like and how does that affect the way you... Um, get products for your platforms and obviously you've already said a little bit that content uh, acquisition costs are already going up and you know the price world is looming or is coming in terms of subscription costs but talk a little bit more about at least these three leading players and how they help to sharpen you guys in the market and how you also affect them I think man overall so we started all at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we understand the space better than everyone else. And I say this with respect. You know, MTN just lost a service here called Trontrol. You know, there's services that are coming that year. Our Vodacom have got a service. With all due respect, man, we know the space better, you know, because we've been at the trenches. We've seen the consumer evolve, you know, over the last five years. And we have a better understanding of that. The competition, as you rightly know, I think is is amongst those three companies, man, you know, um, outside the mobile operators who are not pushing, you know, predominantly, uh, who don't have a big Western strategy. Yes, Iroko does buy some Hollywood content. Booney's trying to do some European content. We don't do any of that. Um, but I think predominantly their catalogs are 90 or 70 to 90% African, you know. And how they make us better, man? I think starting at the same time, you, you, you all face the same challenges, mm-hmm. platforms, um, revenues, you know, cash flows, you know, so you had to see what they were doing. So Europa had a YouTube model which built a big user base for them that they, they that translated to Europa.com, EuropaTV.com. Mm-hmm. You know, but then they, they put a pay gate last year, it was strictly a pay service. Now, we were ahead of the curve, we were strictly a pay service from the get go. You know, yes, we didn't have great users, a user build a big user base, but we, we, we were of the view that consumers need to become comfortable with paying for content, especially if they're already paying for the DSTV. You know, you know, so they're paying the video club, they're paying a dollar to buy a DVD on the street, right? There is a price, there is, there is a value that there's, there's money they're willing to give for that entertainment, be it a DVD, be it DSTV, you know, be it, um, a VOD service, mm-hmm. right? So we, we were of the view that you need to introduce payments upfront, and I, I'm strongly believe that. Uh, maybe you can go a freemium model, you know, whereby you give like Hulu, some free, some premium, but, you know, which is something we are exploring in our mobile business. But I think predominantly people have to start paying, and we need to respect the customer enough to say, listen, I think I'm willing to pay for it. And secondly, if I pay for it, I need a standard of quality. And payment, you know, assures some level of quality. You know, and uh, and that's what we believe. So we we were different in that. We didn't go the YouTube route, you know, like Iroko. So they built a base, and we learned a lot about building a base and the way they did. You know. We had a production company in house, you know, which they so like us, they were upstream downstream business, but we became predominantly downstream. And they 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 had a production company, they had a big hit, the X Y Z show, which was the precursor to Ogas on Top, which is very big in Nigeria now, yeah. you know. Um, and they they managed to build a base in part through, through that particular asset and build their online business. It made us better because like. You you looked at the continent as a continent. <laughs> you know, it's a big place. You know, it's a million billion people, yeah. and they've all got different tastes, but they also have the same fundamental desire for entertainment. 
but entertainment that's in their languages, that it's in their in their particular colloquialisms and cultural mannerisms, yeah. you know, um, and and that was something that was really important. And the idea was, I mean, reinforced by people, you know, starting businesses at the same time that were looking at the same thing. And I think all three companies can say that Netflix must have probably helped us a lot in terms of reshaping our thinking on the matter. You know, not depending on broadcasters or satellite companies or distributors to get the content out there. You know, yeah. so for me, I think um, um, naturally I'm competitive by nature. You know, so you know I, I respect these guys as also. You know, but we we had to we had to look to ourselves and say where where can we get better? And that's where we're in mobile. Yeah. I'm mobile with a lot of fascinating things in mobile. We started introducing content in shorter lengths. We started compressing content. So we looked at the diasporas. Initially, it's our big market. Then uh, a few years later, we were like, no, but Africa is our big market. Maybe not now, but maybe in two, three years' time, it will be. So let's start building towards that. Let's shift our mindset and look at mobile. You know, let's look at the problems I mentioned with mobile in terms of what kind of genres and formats, you know, how long should it be, what's the price point. We started looking at that two or three years ago, you know, purely because we realized that, we're going to be closer to our customer here. Firstly, we're not competing indirectly with Netflix, Hulu, you know, Amazon Prime or Amazon Instant Video, you know, Love Film in, in Europe and the German services or cable services. You know, we're just competing with multi-choice. <laughs> and they're predominantly a pace of the pay TV service, whereas we can just look at mobile content and, see, and start thinking of how to deliver that. So we had to, everyone was pretty much doing the same thing and we took the, we took the step, the huge step forward by let's start focusing on mobile. And that, that was something that I, I think for me personally was, was one of the things that maybe stands, makes our business stand out a bit. Um, and at least as an entrepreneur that it, 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 it may be, Awakened me to the to the realities of the continent that this is a mobile first continent, mm-hmm. you know, and how do we entertain people via mobile? That's a problem that needs to be solved. And is it video, audio, both? How do you go about that? And how then do you make them pay for that? You know, and I think competition fostered that. You know, the industry as a whole, as I mentioned, I think there's a platform bubble, a big one. I think we need consolidation, aggressive consolidation in the next two to three years. We need I think Africa can only support five at most VOD services. You know, that maybe that, that's a bit too much to be honest, but five would be the number, not hundred. You know, and um, I don't think this is the game for 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 mobile operators. I think it's the game for creatives and entrepreneurs. You know, not necessarily for mobile engineers. Yeah. Uh, so, but a lot of the impetus, the competitive impetus, is coming from them. You know, and some media companies. But I think that will change because it's good. people will realize it takes a long time to make money here. This concludes the first part or two-part series where I interviewed Simba Mabasha, the co-founder of Wabona, a streaming video on-demand service based out of South Africa. So if you really enjoyed what you heard, you're going to love the second part and the concluding part of the show. So skip on down to episode 23 to get more of the great discussion between me and Simba. And if you haven't listened to our show before, feel free to go back and listen to any other shows in the past. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.